we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dave Werns. I have the, the privilege of serving across all of our campuses as your Director of Missions and Mobilization. Uh, and this morning, once again, I have the honor of opening up God's Word with you as we continue our journey through the book of Esther. So if you would, please join me in turning to the fourth chapter of that book, Esther chapter 4. We're going to get into that text today. While you're, while you're making your way there, let's do just a brief summary of the story so far, just so we all get on the same page. There's a lot of history here. And so as we pick up in the book of Esther, the Jews, the whole nation, has been taken into captivity. Right? They're scattered across the Persian Empire, all the way from East Asia to East Africa. And King Ahasuerus, also known as King Xerxes, is the current ruler of the Persian Empire. And all the way back in chapter 1, he effectively fired his previous wife, Vashti. She was the queen until he chose a Jewish orphan named Esther to be the next queen of Persia. And as if that story isn't wild enough, her adopted father, her cousin who's adopted her as uh, her, his own family, right, he's been riding his own personal roller coaster of wild events Uh, Right after Esther gets ripped out of his family and and thrown into the royal harem, which is bizarre to even think of, right? Your daughter being taken and thrown into a royal harem as a slave. Right after that, he goes to the, the top of the mountain by uncovering a plot to assassinate the king. And he turns that around into saving the same king that took his daughter from him, saving that king's life. What a bizarre turn of events. And right on the heels of that, right, it gets even crazier because he turns around and offends that king's top official named Haman. And Haman is so deeply offended by Mordecai that he vows to kill Mordecai and his whole family. In fact, he vows to kill not just Mordecai, but all of the Jews throughout the entire empire. Friends, it is a wild story, and we're just getting started. We still have over half of the book to go. So as chapter 3 closes... We find that King Ahasuerus has been bribed and manipulated by this wicked man, Haman, into legalizing. He's decreed a legal genocide over all of the Jews in his empire. And he sent out uh, missives. He sent out letters giving direct, explicit instructions to all of his local governors on how they are to, quote, destroy, kill, and annihilate All of the Jews in their provinces, both the young and the old, men and women. And the whole city, the capital city, is thrown into confusion. Chaos reigns. And here we are at chapter 4. If you would follow along, we're going to read chapter 4 in Esther, starting in verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, that decree of, of genocide, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. He went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. And he went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one is allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in, in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree had reached, there was great mourning among the Jews. With fasting and weeping and lamenting, many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. 
And when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, she sent out garments to clothe Mordecai so he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. And Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn why is this and what is this. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened. And the exact sum of money that Haman had paid to the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. And Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction. That he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her. Go to the king, beg his favor, plead with him on behalf of her people. So Hathak went and told Esther and Mordecai what Mordecai had said. And Esther spoke with Hathak and commanded him, go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and all the peoples of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death. Except when one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come to the king these 30 days. So they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them, reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have come, whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And then Esther told them, reply to Mordecai. Go, gather all the Jews that are found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my young women will fast as you do. And then I will go to the king. Though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did everything Esther had ordered him. Father, we love you. We love that you are trustworthy. We love that you are working on our behalf. God, we recognize that we are not good at trusting you. Would you help us today, through your word, with your spirit, would you help us believe you and trust in you? Amen. Even if you didn't grow up reading the Bible or going to church or with the little flannel graphs telling you all the Bible characters, even if that's not your history, odds are this is the portion of the story you're most familiar with. Right across all of the world, the the phrase, for such a time as this, has been used to, to promote devotionals and summer camps and seminars and sermons and workshops about how Christians can find their, their purpose, fulfill our calling by being courageous and brave, bold for the name of Christ. And, and I get it. I'm the missions guy, right? So I get it. There is a place, there is a biblical theme of courage that we can look at and learn from that has sustained thousands of Christians across centuries and around the world. Maybe even some of you sitting here today have been deeply moved, encouraged, and sustained by stories like King David going out to fight Goliath, 
by stories like Elijah challenging the the false prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. I'm sure some of you have been inspired by the story of Daniel. As he prayed three times a day in an open window in spite of a law that threatened him with death by lion mauling. Or my personal favorite, Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who boldly stood up to King Nebuchadnezzar and said, we have no reason to answer you because our God is well able to save us. But if he does not, know this, O king, we will not bow down to you or your gods. That kind of bravery, that kind of courage, man, I hope that fires you up. I hope you get excited to go out and do something risky for the gospel. In fact, if there's somebody here today that's, that's ready to go charging the gates of hell with a squirt gun, shoot me an email. Dave at graceky.org. Let's have a conversation about what God's doing in the world and what you can do to join in. I love it. There are dozens of examples of bravery, of courage, of relying on God's promises to stand up to wickedness, depravity. We can point to them. We can learn from them. We can model them. But here's the twist. I'm not so sure Mordecai and Esther are those kinds of people. At least not here in chapter 4. Remember, this story of Esther is missing something. Something vital that all of those other stories of courage have in buckets. This story is missing any reference. Not even an acknowledgement of God. And Esther chapter 4 is one of the places where the apparent absence of God is most awkward. I don't know if you noticed it, but, but there's at least three times where everybody is fasting. Nobody's praying. I don't know about you, but I've never really thought of fasting without praying. It's like eating your macaroni without cheese. It's like you're trying to signal Robin without Batman. Right? Or ordering breakfast without bacon. I guess you could do it. But why? <laughs> Even more interesting than what's missing, I think, is what this chapter includes. You see, Mordecai slips something in that doesn't usually show up in the rest of the stories of biblical Christian courage. If you look down at verse 14, chapter 4, verse 14. Specifically look at Mordecai's choice of punctuation. Bible stories about bravery typically end in periods. Joshua, David, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All those guys. Period, 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 period. Elijah even manages to throw in exclamation points. And then here comes Mordecai with his question mark. Odd. But I am so grateful that he did. You see, Mordecai's question mark here in chapter 4, verse 14, is the reason that I love the story of Esther so much. Some folks have suggested this is a rhetorical question. 
that Mordecai knew the answer and he was making this question to, to sort of prove a point. Friends, I just don't see that in the text. Because at this point in the story, Mordecai's just as in the dark as everybody else. There's been no angelic visit. There's been no dream. There's no prophecy. He hasn't consulted the scriptures. The man hasn't even prayed yet. I think Mordecai is asking a real, genuine question because Mordecai really doesn't know what God is up to in Esther chapter 4. He seems, right, at, at least to have a, a possibility that Esther's rise to the royal position of queen is in some way connected to the, the sudden threat to the Jews. He even has a, a theory that there's a connection there that originated outside of their circumstance. Someone else is orchestrating events, and that someone at least is willing to consider saving the Jews. But at best, he is uncertain. A worst-case scenario, if we paint him in the worst light possible, the man has jumped over uncertainty into unbelief. I don't know that we need to go that far today. In fact, I think we have a lot of evidence to believe otherwise. I think Mordecai is just voicing his ignorance. And as I mentioned before, I am so grateful that he did. Because as backward as it might sound, I think we can find some incredible encouragement from his ignorance. Number one, the first point in your outline is our ignorance mirrors his because it is universally relatable. I don't know about you, but a significant portion of my life today, like an uncomfortably large portion of my life today, feels like I'm just making guesses or just stabbing in the dark, hoping for the best. Not just the last couple of years, but especially the last couple of years. Maybe it's the pandemic, maybe it's new parenting, but I feel like I'm running into these who-knows scenarios at an alarming rate. And you know what? Maybe it is just me. I'll own that. Maybe you're sitting here today and your questions sound less like Mordecai and more like King David. Maybe that's your life. Right? David did ask some questions when he first encountered Goliath. His, his story is recorded in 1 Samuel 17. His questions sounded more like this. Verse 26 says, And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Bold. <laughs> and who is this uncircumcised Philistine anyway that he should defy the armies of the living God? Right, those are the kinds of questions King David usually asks. Maybe that's more like you today. Uh, or maybe your soundtrack is more like uh, the prophet Elijah that we mentioned. That he was challenging 450 false prophets of Baal to a showdown on Mount Carmel all by himself. One versus 450. First, King tells, First Kings 18 tells his story. Uh, at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. He's not just asking questions. You talk about a rhetorical question. Right? He's like, shout louder, he says. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought, maybe relieving himself or out on a journey. Perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. 
I don't know, I don't know too many lives today that play out like those stories. But even if yours does today, I have some sobering news for you. If you keep reading those stories, David and Elijah, you're going to find very shortly both of those guys end up running for their lives, hiding out in caves, and asking some questions that are even more uncomfortable than mine and Mordecai's. I think that's because the reality is, not just throughout the Bible, but all throughout the course of human history, there is an undercurrent, a steady flow of who knows. If we think about it for a second, it should not be that surprising, considering how little humans actually know. It's easy to lose sight of the fact that people will always be comparatively ignorant, right? Meaning the total sum of what we know is going to always be microscopic compared to the volume of knowledge we do not have. It's a hard reality to live with, especially here in America, in the middle of an information age, where it feels like we have limitless information at our fingertips, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But even with the help of Google, artificial intelligence, quantum computers, it doesn't appear that humans have even made a dent in the amount of uncertainty that exists in our world, especially in our own lives. And so the quest for more information continues. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. Okay, I'm, I'm not saying we should be ignorant simpletons. Okay, I, I'm not saying that we shouldn't strive to learn, that we shouldn't strive to discover or, or answer difficult questions by digging into the information God has provided us. What I am saying Ignorance is not a sin. Ignorance does not excuse us for breaking God's laws. But let's be careful that we don't dive headlong into the other ditch in an endless pursuit of more information. Knowledge does not save us. Faith does. And we would do well to remember that the opportunity to fill in some of our information gap was a major part of the bait that our enemy Satan used to hook Eve all the way back in the Garden of Eden. I think it's in your outline, but you can, you can follow along with me in Genesis 3. It starts, The serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you should not eat of any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired 
to make one wise. She took of it. She ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Friends, the limitations on our human knowledge are hardwired into us. Our ignorance is not a result of the fall. We simply were not created to know everything. That's God's job, not ours. And I could go on and on about the dangers of information overload, of, of overexposure, but that's it's a different sermon for another text. Suffice to say, back in Esther chapter 4, this question mark from Mordecai serves as a reminder that our ignorance is normal. I think we can take it a step further, saying our ignorance as Christians is not just normal, it is necessary. It brings us to to point number two. Our uncertainty provides us with an opportunity for faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, uh, another relatively popular verse I think it helps us make a connection between our faith and our uncertainty. Hebrews 11, 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. I think the fact that hoped for and not seen are included in the very definition of faith means that we cannot have faith without at least some uncertainty. Now, stay with me. Some of you guys are jumping ahead. Right? Ephesians 2.8, we saw that this morning. Ephesians 2.8 says that by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. And then a little further in Hebrews, Hebrews 11.6 would tell us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so if faith requires uncertainty, does that mean that our eternal Destiny, our standing before God, will always be in doubt? Absolutely not. Friends, the fact that we can't know everything does not mean we don't know anything. We actually know quite a lot. Thanks be to God for giving us the Holy Bible and the Holy Spirit. We know a lot. Even more than that, we do not have to be 100% certain about a thing in order to be absolutely confident in that thing. Friends, I I think this question in Esther chapter 4, verse 14, can help us understand the crucial role that uncertainty plays in our faith day to day. I think it's crucial enough that I want to help make it as concrete as possible. So I'm going to give you my functional definition of faith and also give you an example, a real-life example of how that plays out day to day. So first, my functional definition of faith. I say functional because it's not Webster, it's not Oxford, but it works when you plug it in to where the word faith is used in the Bible. It's really just a a summary of the scriptures that I know of, particularly in Hebrews 11, that describe how faith works. So based on Hebrews 11, mostly, here we go. 
biblical faith is an active, confident dependency on God's promises and character. I think it's in your notes. I'm going to say it again. Faith is a confident, active dependency on God's promises and character. I think the key really is dependency, but we'll get to the confidence later. Again, thanks to the Bible, thanks to the Holy Spirit, we know God's character. And we're aware of some of his promises. We know those things. What we don't know is how those are going to be revealed in our lives over the course of the years God appoints to us. There's your uncertainty. And so your functional definition for faith is a a confident, active dependency on God's promises and character. Here's your example. A few years ago, my wife, Andrea, and I decided to go skydiving. I think it was a a Groupon or some such thing. Whatever. It was a good idea at the time. (laughs) If you've never been skydiving, let me tell you, there are plenty of opportunities to grow your faith. We opted for what's known as a a tandem jump. That's where you are uh, strapped to a seasoned, trained jumper, and and the two of you essentially share a parachute. Uh, So basically, I was strapped to some guy's lap from from liftoff to touchdown. And for some of you, that's probably just above the threshold of faith that you have. And and so you may not get this opportunity. But for me, that was okay, And, and my faith journey really started at the airplane. I've never seen a vehicle that had so much duct tape (laughs) as an integral part of the frame. They may do that just so you don't feel so bad leaving it, but it it feels bad getting in, too. Not to mention the fact that they've already taken all the doors off, all of the seatbelts out, and so for the first few minutes of the journey, you are actively if not confidently, depending on the skill of the pilot to get you to an altitude where your parachute even has a chance of saving your life. And then you kind of waddle, hop over it, and fall out of the airplane. And as soon as you're out, you don't have to depend on the pilot anymore. Your faith moves to actively, again, maybe less confidently, actively depending on the promises and character of the person who packed your parachute. Now, the place we went, you were always strapped in to the person who packed the chute, which, again, seems like a great idea at the time. Just for me, the man I was strapped to was trying to make a joke on the way up. (laughs) He looks at me and he says, you know, what are the odds of a parachute not opening twice in one day? I'm kind of glad that he told me in the plane, because if he told me on the ground, I would have just sat it out in the car. (laughs) Apparently, he had packed his chute wrong once that morning and had to deploy his emergency parachute, which thankfully was properly packed. Good news, parachute deployed normally. And again, my faith moves. Right? I no longer have to depend on his character and his promises. Now, I'm actively depending on the ropes, the straps, the buckles, the, the, the fabric of the parachute. All of it worked well, and as we descend, we get closer to the ground, 
Again, your faith changes and it goes back to I'm depending on the skills, right, the character of my hilarious jump buddy to, to guide us into a safe landing, which he did. Everybody walked away. It was great. It was fine. We all survived. And as I reflected on this experience, I think I was given a couple of very strong impressions, epiphanies, if you will, about the nature of faith. The first epiphany was that I had the opportunity to experience in real time, on multiple occasions, the difference between knowing something is dependable and actively depending on it. I had watched that little duct-taped doorless plane take off, circle, land, and then take off again at least half a dozen times before I ever stepped foot in it. Unknown to me, I actually watched my lead jumper pack, deploy, and repack his parachute at least three times just that morning while I was waiting for my turn to go. It was a busy place. And so without ever having jumped myself, I could have, if I had been called upon, I could have stood in front of a jury, I could have given legal testimony under oath saying that the equipment, the personnel were all functioning properly, they were all dependable, and they were all safe. I knew they were dependable, but I was not depending on them. Not until I was actively free-falling at approximately 9.8 meters per second per second, right, hurtling towards an almost certain death, until I was saved by a properly packed, skillfully deployed parachute. Friends, if I can be blunt, just because you know God's promises, just because you are aware of God's character, does not mean you are actively depending on them. And you must. You absolutely must. Satan knows God's character. The demons are aware of some of God's promises. Do they have faith? Will they be saved? My second skydiving epiphany actually came on the drive home as Andrea and I were comparing notes about our experiences. As it turns out, she and I were actually trusting slightly different things. I was much more aware of the the hardware, the ropes, the straps, the fabric. She was a little more aware of the skill necessary, right, to get everything in the right order and at the right time. And the reality is, if either of those systems had failed, the hardware or the skill, that journey would have ended much quicker. But they didn't. We were depending on much more than we were aware of. And I guess some people could say that is a measure of faith. I just don't think that's biblical faith. See, the Bible describes our faith as active, not passive. You're not just along for the ride. 
Biblical faith requires that you both know what you are trusting in and that you actively choose to depend on it. Faith is a confident, active dependency on God. We choose to strap ourselves to his promises because so far he has been very good at keeping his word. And then once we do that, right, once we actively depend on his character, everything changes. All of our uncertainty, just all anxiety, no more worry, no more doubts, no more uncertainty, right? I see some confusion. Yeah, that wasn't my experience either. (laughs) I'm not saying we ever, ever have reason to worry or be anxious. In fact, quite the opposite. But friends... Your uncertainty that remains is actually an integral part of God's plan for your life. If there was no chance that your life could experience tragedy, horrible pain to some degree, then you would have no opportunity for faith. I could not depend on my parachute unless I left the ground. There is no way for me to actively, confidently depend on the ropes, the straps, the buckles, the lead jumper, the pilot, unless I choose to put myself at least with the opportunity for a messy death. Don't worry. None of you are going to have to run out of here and schedule pain into your own life on your calendar, right? God will take care of most of that for you. Remember, he has a lock on all things. He limits, he orders, he controls, and he knows all things. And that includes how much pain comes into your life, how much uncertainty you experience, how strong it is, how often it shows up. And friends, he is not obligated to schedule it with you. And that means there will be question marks in your life. Friends, the doctrine of sovereignty does not remove uncertainty. Nothing this side of death is going to do that for you. But what the doctrine of sovereignty does is it gives purpose to your pain. It gives meaning to those question marks. Mordecai's question back in Esther chapter 4, it's genuine because the threat of death was real for him. That was a real scenario, a possibility that that could happen in chapter 4. But that hint, that hint of purpose inside of his question says, maybe Mordecai was a man of faith. If you would, turn with me to 1 Peter I think we'll see more clearly what we're talking about here. First Peter. First Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. He says, this is Peter talking. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, 
who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be made, ready to be revealed in the last time, in this. What is the this? Is your inheritance. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, even though it perishes through fire, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look back at verse 6. The end of verse 6 says, Grieved by various trials. Some of your translations might say suffer or, or struggle with or distressed by. That's a broad brush. I think we could say the extinction of the Jews in Esther chapter 4 would fall into that category. Various trials. I think even now the death of a loved one could be considered one of the various trials. The unexpected end of a career, of a marriage, of a pregnancy. The unfulfilled desires for a spouse, for, for a child, for even a friend. These are various trials. The the pain that we experience chronically, persistently, whether it's emotional or physical, these are various trials. That's just a handful that I'm aware of today in our own church. And Peter says these things are necessary. But, but why? Why? If you look at 7, verse 7. Peter says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's spell it out plainly. Peter is suggesting, more than suggesting, that all the distress and uncertainty in your life is specifically designed to prove to a watching universe that you are confidently, actively depending on God's promise to give you an inheritance because of what Jesus did on your behalf. I hope you notice that's a little different than saying you're confidently depending on Christ's finished work to pay for your sins and grant you pardon for eternity. We absolutely need that kind of faith if we're going to escape eternal punishment in hell. But it is different because that faith doesn't necessarily speak into the crisis that you're experiencing this morning. You'll also notice that the faith Peter describes here is a little different than the confidence that we have that God will get you out of whatever mess you're in today. And so if we're not talking about the get you out of hell kind of faith, and we're not talking about the get you out of this mess kind of faith, what kind of faith are we talking about here? We're talking about confidently, actively strapping ourselves to the promise that whatever I stand to lose today, whether it's your resources or your reputation 
or your relationships, whether it's your peace, your comfort, your freedom, your very life, whatever you stand to lose today is worth less than what God has guaranteed for you, has promised to you, has kept and held for you in heaven. I don't want to pretend that that faith comes easily. It does not. We all hope that we know how we would answer if God asked us to sacrifice that which is most precious to us in this life. But folks, I can tell you from personal experience, there is only one way to depend on a parachute. Mordecai gets it. If you turn back to Esther, Mordecai understands. You see, he wasn't just thinking about the threat of genocide. It was more specific than that for him. Remember, they had his daughter. I kind of think Mordecai expected Esther to die either way. At the very least, we know that he's asking his adopted daughter to risk her life on a very long shot. If you look back at Esther 4, verse 11, Esther's describing to Mordecai this rule, the law. It says that all the king's servants and all the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is only one law to be put to death. Mordecai knew that law before he ever asked Esther to beg for the Jews' lives. Skip down to verse 14 again. Mordecai's telling Esther, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from, for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. So if she keeps quiet, she dies. But if she speaks up, she only probably dies. That's a terrible choice for a father. But Mordecai is banking his life, her life, the lives of countless Jews across the empire on this barely articulated belief that someone else, somewhere, is orchestrating events and at least has a desire to save the Jews. That is hardly what we would call a confident, active dependency on God's character or promises. He is uncertain. He's only doing this because he has no other options. The man hasn't even prayed yet. At best, we would say his faith, if he has any, is weak. So what about you? I would be willing to bet almost anything that every single person here, whether you're at Florence, at Fort Thomas, in Independence, watching it sometime online, you are being grieved. You are distressed by some variety of trial today. 
And can you confidently say that God's eternal reputation, that his promised inheritance is worth more to you than your comfort or your peace or whatever it is that's in jeopardy? Can you say that with confidence today? Or would you join Mordecai and say, who knows? Is your faith weak? If that's you, I know it's me. (laughs) If that's you today, you're here, you're listening, and your faith is weak. I need you to hear me. Point three is for you. Friends, God welcomes the weak. He actually seeks out and welcomes the weak. I need you to know at least two things today. Number one, I need you to know that you're not alone. I know that you're not alone because as we look through the course of Christian history through the Bible... Around the world, we see men and women who have struggled to depend on God's promises and his character. I know that you're not alone because I have the privilege of talking to Christians from around the world who are in distress and they are struggling to depend on God's promises and character. I know you're not alone because I personally today am struggling to believe in God's promises and character, and to strap myself to the promise of an eternal inheritance. And so we're not alone, but I don't know necessarily that that all of us just struggling together is going to make the situation better. And so I need you to know a second thing today. I need you to hear that God is not limited by the size or strength of your faith. He is not limited by your weakness. In fact, God has been consistently using the weak faith of his people throughout centuries and around the world to show off the extraordinary power and faithfulness of his character and his promises. We see it over and over and over and over. We saw it with Abraham. We saw it with Jacob, with Moses, with Rahab, with Samson, Naomi, Jonah. We see it with Peter, James, John, all the disciples. I think in general, the faith of God's people can be summed up in one desperate outburst from a struggling father recorded in Mark chapter 9. He he brought his demon-possessed son to Jesus, laid him at his feet, and with tears cries out, I believe. Help my unbelief. What God has chosen to do through people like them, through people like us, is so wildly disproportionate that Jesus describes it as the difference between a mustard seed and a mountain. Friends, your faith may be weak, but it does not limit God. And your weak faith is nothing to be ashamed of. You're in very good company. 
God is not embarrassed by your weakness, and he certainly isn't held back by it. Mordecai and Esther have less evidence of faith than almost any other biblical hero that we have a record of. And spoiler alert, God still chose to use them to display his power and faithfulness across eternity. He used their weak faith to save the Jews from certain doom. And he's still doing it. It seems as though God finds a a particular joy, a pleasure almost, in, in the contrast between his extraordinary and eternal work and the uncertain, questioning, weak people that he uses to accomplish it. And for us, that means that even in our own weakness, we live in a world of staggering opportunity. We can bring glory to God by confidently depending on his promises and character. We may have the exact same need for dependency as Mordecai and Esther did, but friends, we have exponentially more reason to trust God's character and his promises. More than Mordecai ever even dreamed of. God has provided some of the most incredible blessings, some undeniable advantages to us, the church, today. 2022. Friends, we have the entire counsel of God. We have the whole declaration of his will We have the the finished work of the cross to look back on. We have the testimony of an empty tomb in front of us. We have the advocacy of a risen, a reigning, a returning King Jesus who, who makes intercession for us day and night. We have the constant guidance, the help, the power of an indwelling Holy Spirit. We have the fellowship, the camaraderie, the God, the friendship of an ever growing church and bride and body of Christ, we have the unquestionable testimony of saints, of prophets, of martyrs, of angels. Brothers and sisters, the weakest faith among us today is enough to make nations tremble. And on top of it all, just because you walked in here today with weak faith, It does not mean you have to wake up tomorrow with weak faith. Right now, today, this moment, you can choose to confidently, actively depend on the character and the promises of God. I know this is a lot to process. I know there are millions of specific ways that you can apply this to your life today. Right, we, could, we could fast and pray. We could evangelize our neighbors and our family. You could sell all of your possessions and move to another country where they don't know the name of Jesus. But if you're serious about strengthening your faith, it might be wise to start with smaller steps over time and build from there. And so here are two very simple ways as we close, that you can strengthen your faith today. Number one, your active dependence on God's promises and character 
should include rest. We get to stop managing, avoiding our uncertainty, and we get to humbly accept what God gives us today. It should also look, our faith, our our active dependence on God's promises and character should look like regular, even daily celebration. We can practice thanksgiving in the middle of our distress. We can give thanks to God for what he has done and what he is doing. Friends, my prayer for us today is that we will make use of what little faith we have And we would say along with Mordecai, maybe with a little more hope, even if we don't have less certainty, we could say, who knows? Perhaps for such a time as this, I've been placed into such distress so that the universe might once again see the true worth and value of the eternal inheritance that has been promised to me in Christ Jesus. I want to leave you with a passage that I think encapsulates this this connection between our uncertainty and our inheritance. It's from Paul's second letter in Corinthians chapter 2. Sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I think it's in your outline, but you could just listen. This is Paul saying, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God said... Let light shine out of darkness has shone into our heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. For we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Christ so that the life of Christ may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believe and so I spoke, we also believe and so we speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring you into his presence. For it is all for your sake. So that grace extends more and more. People may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. And so we do not lose hope. Though outwardly our self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Father God, would you strengthen our faith today? We love you. Amen.